The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I think I have to turn this on. How did that do? Yeah. So, I was inspired to talk this morning about a topic I normally would not speak on because I picked up uh, an issue of Buddha Dharma magazine and there was an article by Joan Sutherland called What is Enlightenment? And I said, oh, that's interesting. All of us have kind of, most of us, most of us come to this practice because of suffering and we want to end suffering. But not everybody does. So I have a question for you. Do you ever think about enlightenment? Is it a goal for you? Does it have any meaning? You know, um, in Western Buddhism, we don't talk very much about enlightenment. In the tradition that we're in, uh, it's sort of out there as something that's somewhat unattainable. And we ask ourselves, who... Who are enlightened beings? Do you know any enlightened beings? And you know, I I think about that, and I have a few candidates, <laughs> people that I think have particularly mastered themselves and understand and see things as they are. So, what Joan did was encourage readers to consider enlightenment. Consider enlightenment. What does that? What does it mean? And where does? What's the place of it? You know. So I kind of like to explore that with you. Um, so one of the things she said is this: enlightenment is the vast and awe-inspiring nature of the universe itself, and it is the way each of us, each of us, thinks, feels, and acts when we are aware of and participating in that vast enlightenment manifesting as us. That's actually kind of hard to get your arms around. (laughs) But what she was trying to say is that the way things are is enlightenment, just things as they truly are. And our experience of the way things are is also enlightenment. In other words, it doesn't happen without us. And it doesn't require us. That's a little obscure. So enlightenment, one of the problems with enlightenment is, is the word itself. It's an adequate translation of the Pali word, which is bodhi. You know, it's a perfectly acceptable translation of the word. But it really arose out of a philosophical era, the Enlightenment era, that had to do with rational thought, and, and um, it refers to a lot of other Asiatic traditions in what they think of as reaching nirvana, and somehow it doesn't quite fit, you know, it, it can be easily mis- misconstrued, easily misconstrued, although the, the Using the word enlightenment, enlightenment is like, you, know, you see the light that permeates all things and it interpermeates and it, it's non 
uh, selective. The light shines on everything, and, and it's warm, and it has a nice feeling about it. It's a really nice image. But another way to look at Bodhi is that what it means is awakening. Bodhi means awakening. Ah, that's a little different. And one of the differences has to do with just the perspective. If you look at enlightenment as, as you know, something where you're, you're kind of crossing a threshold, you're, you're going into some place. And awakening is more of a process. You know? Enlightenment sounds like an arrival, like you've gone somewhere. But awakening sounds a little more vibrant and open. And Okay, so that's interesting. There's, there's a path of awakening, a path of awakening. And we all started on this path when we started to meditate, to study Buddhist teachings, to seek freedom from the suffering caused by greed, aversion, and delusion. So we've taken on the task of developing what it takes to get rid of that. Now, there's another word that's often associated with enlightenment. I've already used the word nirvana. The Pali word is nibbana. And nibbana doesn't mean enlightenment. Nibbana means free. It's a word that that translates as coolness. It's coolness. And the idea is that when there is coolness, you're free of the fire of passion, the fires that are associated with greed, aversion, and delusion. So somehow we came back to those same, same ideas, that awakening and nibbana both are related to this being free of greed, aversion, and delusion. So, these three are called uh, the roots of suffering. They they have other names. They're called the kalesas. They're called um, the defilements. I don't like defilements because it feels kind of icky. (laughs) But they're the roots of suffering. And what they are, are the roots of wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting things to be different than they are. It's kind of interesting now, it, it kind of feeds back to what Joan was saying about enlightened being, seeing things as they truly are. Greed, aversion, and delusion are wanting things to be different than they are. You know, at, at, the, at the base, that's what it is. You know, even if you're happy, sometimes you'll have a moment of real happiness and you'll say, oh, it should always be this way. There's that grabbing onto it, you know? I want, I want everything else to be different because I want it to always be like this. <laughs> or I am really, really, really sad. This really sucks. I'm sitting in the worst traffic jam in the world. 280 this morning looked like Los Angeles, both directions. <laughs> and I thought, wow, where am I? <laughs> and I found myself looking at my watch and wishing it was different. <laughs> but you know what? It wasn't different. It was just the way it was. <laughs> it looked like Los Angeles. <laughs> Now, some teachers talk about 
practices that lead to enlightenment. You know, and there are kind of two different in our tradition. There are kind of two different things. One is are the practices of uh, meditative practices. You know, where, where we develop strong concentration and we develop particular kinds of concentration. And if you go through all these steps, then you're going to reach some existential place that we can call enlightenment. Other teachers will say, no, 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 that's not enough. It's, those are just tricks. Those are just experiences. Those are experiences. But you have to be able to let go of those experiences. It's all about letting go, letting go of grasping, letting go of clinging. Somewhere in here lies some truth. Is there any advantage to us to think about enlightenment? To think about reaching the place, reaching the place where we can be free of greed, aversion, and delusion. Where we can be free (coughs) of wanting things to be different than they are. Now somehow, that seems more approachable to me. To be free of wanting things to be different than they are. Somehow what that says to me is that I can live the life I'm living and have that as a goal. Because it's, it's taking whatever is here. It's not about making life different. It's saying, just right here, can I be happy? Can I be satisfied? Can I be accepting of everything that's right here? You know, when, um, when I was trained to be a hospice worker, with Zen Hospice Project, one of the things they told us is what's important is to bring your whole self. This is one of the, one of the five guiding principles. Bring your whole self to the bedside, they said. That meant you bring all of your quirks and your foibles and your compassion and your bad moods and everything, you bring it there and you say all of it is Okay. Not okay in the sense that I never try to be skillful or, or that I never try to uh, release ill will, but that I recognize that that is here and that it's part of me. And I don't try to make things other than they are. So, so if that were true then we would have to say that enlightenment isn't about creating a different kind of life, but it's about engaging life, really engaging life, being, being right there for it. Not a moving away from it, but freedom right here to be tasted whenever you're open to it. Whenever you're open to it. <clears throat> So there's a, a story in, in uh, Gil Fronstall has a book called The Monastery. There's a short story in it, and the title of it is Aspirations. So there were two young men who were happening to, happen to uh, enter the monastery on the same day. One was an aristocrat. He had a very strong sense of entitlement. The other was the son of local farmers. And he'd spend his life working on the family farm and you know, he, he didn't 
quite have the same attitude about what was possible in the world. So the abbess interviewed both of them as they were coming in, and she said, uh, why are you becoming monks? So the aristocrat said he'd come to climb to the highest achievement of human life, to experience the bliss, the glory, and the brilliant light of liberation. And when we talk about enlightenment, that's pretty much what it sounds like, right? And he was there to do that job. The peasant said, I am poor and unschooled, and I have no hope of enlightenment. However, I hope to find the path in the everyday activities of my life. May I see the truth in the food I eat, in the work I do, and in the people I encounter. So you know the end of the story. Within six months, the peasant was graced with liberation. The aristocrat is still striving on courageously. So it isn't about striving either. It isn't how hard we work. But it does involve some discipline. It does involve being there and making, doing something. It's not enough when we meditate to just put our minds on something and concentrate on that. We have to actually be aware of it. You know, when we meditate, we have to actually be aware that we're focusing on something. It's not just, well, I'm here, and there's my breath. Yeah, I see it. Now I'm going to go think about something else, right? I mean, there is some effort involved with this. In seeing things as they are, we have to be able to actually see them. We have to be aware of them. We have to notice what's actually going on. So meditation is a really good practice for developing that capacity. Okay, that's good. So in her article, Joan Sutherland asked the question, can we find the place where wisdom, born of generations of experience, meets us where we, each of us, actually live? Can we get there? So here's, one of the, here's the, the phrase that hooked me. The, the little, it's a little more than a phrase, so bear with me. There is mad discipline and insane persistence on this path, but they're in the service of something more fruitful than certainty, control, and will. They're in the service of availability. Whatever happens, you have to just keep showing up. Sit the meditation, attend the retreat, absorb the teachings, face the fear, feel the sorrow, endure the boredom, stay open to the disturbing and also the knee-bucklingly beautiful. It's that in the service of availability that really struck me, that really had me hooked, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's not so much that if you take these 10 steps, this is what's going to happen. If I sit every day for 15 hours and I am totally focused and I truly understand how my mind works, then, then I will be free of greed, aversion, and delusion. I don't think so. I think I'd be grabbing onto something so hard. I'd be working so hard at it that I forgot to be just available for letting something happen. 
Now, when you think about being available for something, you know, so, so um, I'll give you an example. So, <clears throat> I've often heard people talk about someone who wanted to be in a relationship, and they say, well, she's just so unavailable. And what does that mean? Well, you know, it means that, we've, that perhaps she's built up some kind of, she has a checklist maybe, I have to check off all these things before, before I'm available. Or perhaps there's a barrier that says, okay, this close but no closer. Or perhaps it has something to do with, uh, I don't want to think about it right now. Oh, I want someone to find me. All of these are kind of examples of not being available. Nothing's going to happen if you're so protected, if your heart is so protected that nothing can get through. So when we look at practices, there has to be something else present. There has to be, there has to be that openness in order to be available to the possibility of what could happen. So one of the things I did after I read this article is I went and looked at a lot of different people's descriptions of enlightenment and nibbana. And I discovered that everybody had something a little different to say. Some people did not want to address it at all. Now, when I, when I use people here, I'm talking about different teachers in our tradition. I, I don't even want to talk about it. But everybody pretty much agreed on the meaning of nibbana having to do with letting go of greed, aversion, and delusion. Letting go of that in some way. Gunaratana says, Enlightenment is nothing less than extinguishing the burning pain caused by greed, hatred, and delusion. When the fire of greed, hatred, delusion, birth, growth, decay, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair is extinguished, that's quite a mouthful, the result is total peace, total calm, total tranquility, total inexpressible happiness, while the mind and senses are at the same time 100% clearer, pure, and energized. Enlightenment is inner light, inner brightness, inner warmth. Well, that sounds pretty good. He's one of the people who thinks that we're really making a mistake by not thinking about enlightenment. And you can see that if that, that is the outcome, doesn't that sound delicious? Have you ever felt that way? I'm not talking about moments of bliss. I mean, you know, you, you can think sometimes just hiking to the top of a mountain and the sun is shining and there's a nice breeze and, and it's all energetic and you know, there's a gorgeous layout of nature before you and you're feeling just high, just high. This is magnificent. What's that feeling like? Just for a moment, you don't want anything to be different. Shortly thereafter, it's, oh, it should always be this way. But just for a moment, just for a moment, 
You don't want anything to be different. You're not trying to change anything. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, if somebody was just here to share it with me, or, <laughs> you know. I mean, there are, these, these thoughts come in very quickly. But we can all have these moments when we truly are not wishing for things to be different. Can we notice those moments? Really notice them. And, and to look at them clearly. Every time we're wanting something to be different than it is, there's a tension around it. There's a tension of, uh, it was just, you know, I really wish this knee was not so tight. On the other hand, it's kind of interesting. That's a different feeling than I've had before. Ah, now the energy around that is just a little bit different. And I'm not so focused on wanting it to be different. Just, oh, that's what it's doing now. That's what's happening now. Part of the problem with this idea of being free of greed, aversion, and delusion is that it, we were talking about the absence of something. <laughs> oh, it's really hard to talk about the absence of something. So what I'd like you to think about is what's left when there's no greed, hatred, and delusion. What's there then? You know, what, that, what does that look like? What does that feel like? What's there? To let go of the roots of suffering takes a lot of practice. Takes a lot of practice. First, there's mindfulness, because the first thing is you have to notice. (laughs) Really, it's all about noticing. We have to notice where we are. We have to see things as they are. We have to know the movement of our mind. We have to know the practical aspects of how we typically react to things. We have to see reaction and say, oh, I see that. Oh, yeah, that's me doing that. Oh, uh uh-huh, oh. As soon as we start putting meaning on it, then we're going into some other place. But just seeing it, being aware of it, really noticing it, now that's important. Because what we know then, what we notice, is the truth of dissatisfaction. We notice oh, I like this, I don't like this, I'm satisfied with this, I'm not satisfied with this. I want more of this, oh, that's more dissatisfaction, I see. We see that, and like putting our hand on a hot stove, we immediately lift the hand. We don't have to say, okay, Maria, you need to lift the hand, we just lift the hand. So that the letting go becomes as strong as any other reaction. It's just the letting go. I don't need this. Oh, I don't need this. It takes effort. It takes discipline. But mindfulness is not the end. It's the tool. 
It's just the tool. It's just the thing we use. So success as you walk on the path depends on whether you make a strong intention. What is your intention? You know? It doesn't matter whether you manifest that intention so much as say you have the intention. To give you a, an example, talking about enlightenment is, um, is frightening for me. <laughs> Uh, I don't consider myself an enlightened person. But I can come in here and say, let's explore this. And my intention is to, to introduce the idea to you in a way that will allow you to explore it on your own. That's my intention. I may or may not be successful at that. Everything that we do has that quality. We have an intention we may or may not be successful. But we have to have the intention first. So the Buddha had uh, one, one general standard for what we should accept. The standard is not based on faith or reasoning. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to work it out. He said, when contemplating an action, ask yourself whether based on your own experience, on your own experience, such an action would be harmful to anyone, including yourself. If it's harmful, it is not skillful, and the action should not be done. End of story. That's it. Based on your experience... If it is beneficial to everyone, including yourself, and if people who are wise would approve it, then it is skillful and the action should be done. That's it. Based on your own experience, does it hurt someone? Does it benefit someone, including yourself? Then you choose. So here's something else Joan said. The arc of awakening that leads us to the kind of life that, that includes enlightenment is made up of path, revelation, and embodiment. Path, revelation, and embodiment. So you have what you do. My path is I have an intention. I'm adopting mindfulness. I have these, these intentions on how I'm going to be in the world. And then something happens. I have an insight. I have a revelation. I have a piece of data that tells me, ooh, I wish I hadn't done that. And then I take that and I embody that. It's not abstract. It becomes part of me then. This letting go becomes part of you. It doesn't become theoretical. It just happens. Because that's part of, the, that's part of that intention. 
So there, there was another story in Gill's book that I found that I thought was also interesting. It was called Wisdom and Compassion. <clears throat> when it was time for the monastic community to meditate, the new nun headed for the meditation hall. Placing her shoes on the shoe rack, she looked down and saw they weren't lined up parallel to each other. This helped her to see that she was distracted. <laughs> due to the excitement of her first day at the monastery. Letting go of her distraction, she looked more carefully at what was in front of her. She saw that her shoes were old and worn. Remembering when they were new, she reflected on how all things are transient and how quickly they change. Soon, she thought, I will be an old nun in this monastery. Reflecting on how precious each moment was, she reached down to straighten her shoes. Doing so, she noticed that if she moved them to the left, then there would be space for another pair of shoes to the right of hers. Thinking of the other monks and nuns who were coming to the meditation hall, she gently pushed her shoes to the side. Happy, the new nun entered the meditation hall. So here are the pieces of that. She's excited. She's aware of her excitement. She's getting ready to go in. Looking at the shoes, she becomes aware of her distraction. Ah, so she says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to actually be aware of these shoes. She thinks of the shoes, she looks at them. I'm going to be aware. And as she does, then she notices something that she never noticed before. Oh, You know, there's more room here. Oh, I too will die. Oh. And then she moves the shoes. Because what comes out of her spontaneously is caring about other people. It it wasn't her intention to do something kind for other people when she put her shoes down to go into the meditation hall. Being aware of what was there, she, she incorporated it each step of the way what was going on for her. It wasn't about the compulsion of lining up the shoes. It was noticing and then being aware of what was happening, reflecting on what was happening was important to her. There is mad discipline and insane persistence on this path, but they're in the service of something more fruitful than certainty, control, and will. They're in the service of availability. In the service of availability. Whatever happens, you have to just keep showing up. Sit the meditation, attend the retreat, absorb the teachings, face the fear, feel the sorrow, endure the boredom, Stay open to the disturbing and also the knee-bucklingly beautiful. It's my experience that following this path leads you to be more open. It leads to this openness of heart, a softening of the heart, that changes the way you interact with the world. 
When I began this path for myself, I adopted the intention of loving-kindness, that I wanted to have an open heart. That was a... a, a, that was actually a very challenging thing for me, to have an open heart. And now, uh, this is, uh, I've been practicing meditation for about 14 years, 15 years, something like that. Now I'm more aware when it closes. I can feel my heart closing and think, oh, something's happening here. I'm afraid, I'm sad, something, something is here that is causing me to shut down. The practice of being open to possibilities also opens your heart. It opens your ability to be free of wanting things to be different than they are. I am not free of wanting things to be different than they are. I have a lot of things. Every moment, I have to make a decision whether I want something to be different than it is. It's not a mental process, but I see it more now. I notice my wanting things to be different than they are. I'm bored. I don't want to be bored. Oh, I'm bored. Bored. Okay. (laughs) So there's some practices. And one of them is to notice in your experience, are you open or not open? Are you willing to feel what you feel? Are you willing to see what you see? Are you willing to experience what you're experiencing? It's just a practice. Not because there's a way to be, but just, am I open to this or not open to this? And then, if not, what's keeping you from being open? What do I notice about why I'm not open? Are there thoughts? Is there a sense of vulnerability? Is there a sense of fragility, sensitivity? When I walk into an elevator, I'm very seldom with a feeling of openness because I get claustrophobic in elevators. And so I'm very conscious of my shutting down when I walk into the elevator. And sometimes I choose to stay that way. (laughs) And sometimes I choose to deliberately open myself up just to see what it's like. What is your willingness to have your heart broken? So I told you that the the freeway was jammed up today. The reason is there was a multi-car accident on 280 going north into the city. And traffic was stopped both directions because everybody wanted to look at this. When I first saw the accident, because I'm driving, I'm thinking, okay, where is the accident? I don't want to be in that lane. And then I discovered it was over on the other side, and I took a breath, oh, good, we'll get past it, it'll be fine. And I noticed all of those thoughts. But when I got closer, I saw the blinking lights of the fire engine. As I got closer, I saw how many rescue people were there. And then I saw this car that was just demolished, just 
There were no doors and, and no windshield. And, and my heart just collapsed. And I didn't think at all about what lane I was in. What I thought about was, oh my God, who was hurt? What happened? I don't know how much of the, the traffic jam was from people wondering that or whether there was a sort of, uh, you know, I have to look at this, see what's happening. Or a feeling of, thank God it wasn't me. But being able to see that and allow it to impact you is being open. Allowing, allowing that possibility of being hurt by that is being open. That same openness is what allows you to take delight in a child or that peak I described before. You could be so attached to getting to the top of the peak and saying, I did it, that you don't even notice. What else is there? It's being open to that that allows us to see things as they are and be okay with things as they are. Okay in the sense of not trying to wish they were different or wanting them to be different. That's how we become free of greed, hatred, and delusion. We practice being in touch with things as they are. And we practice, and we practice, and we practice, and we practice. And we don't judge it. If, as I was passing that accident this morning, I noticed the demolished car and had no reaction to the people that had been in the car, but rather was more concerned about whether that car was going to collapse into our side of the freeway and create a hazard. It's a different response. And it doesn't need to be judged one way or the other. This is a very important part of seeing things as they are and being okay with things as they are, is not judging them all to be good or bad. We can judge something to be skillful, an action to be skillful. There's a kind of discernment. This is skillful, this is unskillful. But it's not good or bad. Somehow that good or bad part is what leads to wanting things to be better, wanting things to be different, wanting things to be other than they are. So, so I don't think too much about reaching enlightenment. But I think a lot about being free. Being free now. Bring, being free here. And that freedom, that freedom from the causes of suffering starts with 
noticing. And then reminding myself, things are as they are. Am I okay with things being as they are? So those are my thoughts. I welcome any comments, questions, not that I think I can answer them, objections, ruminations. Thank you. Yes. Um, could you speak about recognizing delusion? I think I recognize greed. Mm-hmm. Delusion is uh, is tricky because, after all, if if you weren't deluded, you wouldn't be deluded. <laughs> <laughs> but there are there are things. There are ways to look at delusion. So. Um, one thing that, uh, one aspect of delusion is confusion. So there is um, there's a piece of the way we experience life that has to do with really, uh, with, with not imposing what we think about something onto something. So let's see if I can give you an example of that. Um, well, so this, this gentleman got up and left. Okay? Now, maybe he had some place to be at 9.30 or 10.30, whatever time it was. Or maybe he was bored. Or maybe he, you know, there are many kinds of reasons that he might have left. Now, I could sit here and watch that, and I could allow for all those possibilities, or I could fall into the trap of saying, oh, he hates me. He really hates this. This is going to be really terrible. Now, to the extent that I know how my mind works, that I've followed and I've noticed how my mind works, I will detect that, that kind of feeling. I'll detect my a uh, tendency to want to attach meaning to the fact that he got up and left. And I will humor myself. This is my reaction. I say, oh, look at you worrying about why he got up and left. Right? Now, as soon as I notice myself putting a meaning on that, I know it's delusion. Because I don't know that. I don't know why he left. Very good. Very good example. Okay. There are many kinds of delusions like that. If I find myself in habits of thought, ah, that's a good thing to look at. There's delusion here somewhere. So um, one time, oh, there, there was a, I've told this story before, but it's what comes to mind. So there was a, I noticed it when I, every time I drove to town, my stomach would, would get tense. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I figured out it had to do with this political problem that was in town, and there was a lot of ill will. And I was blaming a particular person for this ill will. And I realized I didn't even know this person. 
Now, this person did something I objected to, no question, but I did not know this person. And so catching myself blaming this person for my stomach ache was delusion. So, so every time we are looking for meanings is a good place to look for delusion. You know, my stomach was aching because I had ill will toward this person. Didn't have anything to do with him, actually. He, he had no influence on my stomach. He didn't know me either. <laughs> right? he, he, he didn't even know me. He wasn't hurting me. I was. So, so that, what I'm describing is, is understanding and seeing through delusion. So the way to be vigilant about delusion is to notice when you're, t- when you're attaching meaning, to ask to become aware of what your own mind habits are so that you can detect them. Those are my suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. His actions. He was doing something that I considered... Um, how can we put... I, I don't want to get too specific about it, but <clears throat> this was... Uh, this had to do with the environment, and I felt he was being harmful to the environment. And so I still am fighting what he's doing. But I am not hating him. Yes. Well, I don't even hate his actions. I'm fighting against them. See, it, it has a little bit to do with the, how, how strongly we're grasping onto something. And in fact, this, this particular mm, development kept me basically from going to town for a couple of years. I just never showed up. And recently I've started attending events in town, and people would say, gee, how long have you lived here? And I'll say, 10 years. And they'll say, What? <laughs> And, and what I'm practicing now is not asking myself, every person I meet, what side of the divide are you on? So that I can see them just as they are and not need to put it into the context of this, this political divide. You know, there, was, there was a time when I, I was furiously looking for something I would like about a particular a uh, major political figure and couldn't think of anything that we had in common. And I discovered he liked Van Morrison's brown-eyed girl, which I did too. And I was really happy to find something. <laughs> because it allowed me to see this person as a person and not as a cartoon. A cartoon that, would, that then I engaged in a delus- deluded way with in wanting things to be different than they are. Wanting them to be different than they are. Yes? Um, I, I was going to say, when you first asked, you know, can we be okay with things as they are? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, what if, what if we're not? And what I thought of was this person that pushes my buttons so often. And, um, and what you said about opening the heart, you know, and, and I really work on that sometimes, and there'll be 
I'll be aware when it closes, you know, and I'll kind of be aware and see that back. But then another little zinger will come and I'll go, oh. <coughs> You know, so this is what I have trouble being okay with. But as you answered her question about delusion, I realized while you were talking that I attached all these different <coughs> things to what this person says. You know, um, there's. Would would you say that this person that pushes all your buttons? I'm sorry, I'm having. <laughs> this this person that pushes all your buttons. Would you say that you want this person to be different than they are? Yes. So, um, <clears throat> so, so have you considered that what's important is not for this person to be different than they are, but for you to stop wanting them to be different than they are? And, and it, this is a really tricky place. So, so I, I'll tell you that there's someone in my life right now that I wish was different than she is. And I believe that I have my best, her best interests at heart when I say that. But she gets to choose. And the only way that I can be okay with it is by reminding myself that she gets to choose. And whatever she is choosing is creating her own karma. It's creating the life that she lives, whatever it is. My choice is whether I'm going to create the karma of ill will toward her for not doing what I know is better for her, what I think is better for her. Uh, There was a person I was having difficulty with uh, in the recent past. She was really pushing my buttons. And I said to her, you know, you're really pushing my buttons. (laughs) And I don't want our relationship to be this way. So I want you to know that when you do that, this is how I react to it. I'm sorry, but that is how I react to it. And I don't want it to be that way. So I need your help to not push my button. And she was very surprised that I put it that way. (laughs) And um, I wouldn't say that it was totally successful. But what changed was having expressed that... I could be okay with just saying, I'm just not going to be there for that. We still had to be around each other, but I didn't have to be there for that activity. When she did that, I'd just say, oops, rang a bell, I'm not here. (laughs) Because what I was unwilling to do was continue feeding the ill will I had toward her as a result of it. So, so I stepped away from it rather than, you know, I made an attempt to change it. But, you know, I, I, I'm not responsible for her. I don't have control over her. I can't do that. So being okay with things as they are is not the same thing as being apathetic toward them just means seeing them as they are and recognizing that we don't control things. 
and that our experience is really a product of our own minds. And that's where the, that's where the freedom lies, is there in our own minds. And I avoid people that push my buttons. <laughs> Sometimes you can't. Yes? Yes. Me wishing there was these buttons in me. <laughs> like, wishing like someone is pushing my buttons, I shouldn't think it like that. Yes. And wishing like getting rid of those. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so getting rid of our own bad habits. <laughs> Our own reactions, yeah. Well, so that's the whole thing. You know, if, if we're non-reactive, then we're free of greed, hatred, and delusion, no question. So, but we're not non-reactive. So what we do is we notice and we say, this is skillful, this is not skillful. If I react this way, this is going to hurt me or them. I have to find a way not for that to happen. But it isn't about trying to make yourself different. There is nothing wrong with you. You know, um, this is not a self-improvement project. It really isn't. What changes is our intention and our desire to, to... What changes is how we see our reactions. When we see this is a reactive behavior, and we say, oh, and and then we consciously let go of that reactive behavior. If we don't let go of that reactive behavior, we say, oh, this is causing suffering. We notice it. And, And eventually, this has happened to me. I've had things happen where ill will will come up, I mean, the, the case of, of going down to town is, is exactly a good example. But there are other examples where I'll say, okay, I'm going to let go of that ill will. I'm going to let go of that ill will. I'm going to get Pretty soon the ill will is just not there anymore. But I have to just keep letting go of it, letting go of it, letting go of it, letting go of it. Yeah. Ajahn Shah said, if you let go a little, you're a little free. If you get go a lot... You're a lot free. If you let go of everything, you're totally free. It isn't about good or bad. It's about freeing yourself, freeing ourselves. So we do have to close. Thank you very much. <laughs>